This is episode five of Ed's Not Dead. This is Robbie Dodd. I am joined by my co-host, the one and only Mr. Casey Siddons. That's correct. I'm here. Hey, Mr. Siddons. Hi. And, of course, Mr. Peter Crable. What's up? Hey, fellas. It's great to be back. It is. It's great to have our loyal audience that we think is growing by the week. I think we have like a million listeners now. <laughs> I checked. I don't know how many zeros that is, but yeah, I don't count. If that... it's at least two, then we're there. No, we're there. Yeah. yeah, I think it's. I think it's growing. It's, it's sizable. Growing. It yeah. is growing. We're getting. We're getting a good amount of feedback on the show. Yeah, it's great. Yes, we are. So thank you uh, to to our audience, and please be sure to spread the word about Ed's Not Dead. Tell your friends. Tell your family members. Tweet about us. Um, and make sure you subscribe. When you subscribe, it makes us look really awesome. Okay. Yeah. All right. That's good. And, you know, we it's, have it's a little promoted, thing. Yeah, and we haven't promoted this, but give reviews on iTunes. Oh, yes. Yeah. Yep. Oh, Mr. Crable, you had an idea that if if you give us a five of five rating on iTunes, uh, we will read your review on the show. Right? I may have borrowed that from another podcast. So you stole that from I you? did. Do you I know did. the name of the podcast you took? It's that Visions from? of Education. Okay. Yeah. Well, we can. They're a great. I'll pod- give them credit. They're a great podcast. Yeah, they're we good can, people. We can steal their strategies. What I we might should really do is read one out of five stars. <laughs> that would sure also be good. Those will be <laughs> trolls. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're gonna get. We're gonna get trolled. <laughs> okay, hard. Don't do that. No. Okay, no. No. All right. Yeah. We got that. <laughs> uh, we have a great show today. But first, you can reach me at rw dodd at ch siddons. I'm just gonna stop because I don't I don't do my Twitter anymore. How Come many, on! How many followers do you have now? No, uh, you weighed in this week. Mr. I did. Kennedy. I actually yeah I made yeah. a post. I think I have thirty six. That's good. That's yeah. Pretty, that's but double dige. I know it's more than thirty. That's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> but this is it, contrary got, to popular belief. This is actually not a plea for more people to follow me. You got to start. Yeah. You got to start somewhere. You do. And of course, at Ed's not dead PC. Yes, and on Facebook, same thing. Okay. All right. Uh, we have a tremendous show, fellas, dare I say, of epic proportions today. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I would agree. Okay, I'm excited. We're excited about the launch of our new segment on Ed's Not Dead. It's called Education Excellence, produced mm-hmm. by Michael Levin Epstein and Sue Semplis. Today's segment, boys, of Education Excellence is sponsored by The Schoolhouse 302, and we're psyched to have Dr. T.J. Vary and Dr. Joe Joseph Oh, no, Joe Jones. Sorry about that. On the show, Dr. Vary and Dr. Jones are current system level leaders in Delaware, and they're also the co-founders of the Schoolhouse 302. We're going to be discussing a new and pretty ingenious framework that they developed for hiring and retaining teachers. I know you read the article, The Two-Thirds Solution for Motivating and Retaining Talented Teachers. It's a great framework, don't you think? I'm excited to hear about it. Yeah. Okay. All right, but before we do that... Uh, Mr. Siddons, give us a an update on the Twittersphere, what people were saying in response to your questions today. We got some great <laughs> feedback. I was not expecting you to bring that up. So I'm going to That's defer. what the intro is really all about. It's just really being just caught totally <laughs> flat-footed by questions from Robbie. Twitter, you know, Twitter's a new – they have a new update, so it's changed a little <laughs> bit. So I'm not completely – comfortable with okay, it. Okay, so let me anyway. let me let me help you out. You asked a question about uh building the perfect school or building your own school, right? If you mm-hmm. could construct a school from the ground up and that just doesn't mean the physical plant, but the structures and strategies and practices and people. Uh you asked about that. What else did you ask on Twitter this week? Well, I we asked what what would you remove from a school? Right. And then what would you 
What were the two things you would keep? Jim Patterson said excessive collaboration. <laughs> Anyone that doesn't show empathy. I'm surprised he wasn't more offended by your your dig at him last show. Yeah, that was. You know what? I actually had some guilt about that dig. You should. Because I you do. I want to set the record straight. Jim Patterson was the counselor of the year in the Montgomery County Public Schools. One of, if not the, definitely one of the finest educators I've ever worked with. And, and I agree. He was amazing. And yeah. now he's retired and, and he trolls us on, on Twitter. He does. And he's... I trolled you, but you didn't respond to me. But uh, So, Robbie, I have a question for you to catch you flat-footed. So you did get some feedback last week about student achievement and socioeconomic status that I believe some people might have taken a little bit of umbrage with. I, well, our friend Serenity Moore, another outstanding educator. Yes. Uh, I think had a question about the statement I made about the association between socioeconomic status and achievement. So to clarify, Serenity, and thank you for bringing it up and, and challenging me, uh, I was referring to the Coleman Report, which found that higher achievement for both low and high SES students was associated with a higher average SES student body. So in other words, both Kids that are, come from poverty and high-achieving kids benefit from being in schools that have an overall high, higher SES population. And, and can you explain for the, the lay people what about the Coleman Report? Give some context. Well, um, Coleman Report was a, was a landmark uh, report that was produced in the 1960s, uh, Equality of Educational Opportunity, and... Uh, you can read Gameron and Long's 40-year retrospective on the Coleman Report. What, what Coleman really focused on was uh, the, the effect of inputs, resources into education, and what difference they make on outcomes. And he was one of the first researchers to use really an econometric modeling approach to looking at inputs and outputs. And some of his findings were very controversial, continue to be controversial, but it certainly was uh, a landmark report. It was released on July 4th, 1966. Oh, okay. I'm not sure I understood anything. That, <laughs> that was so technical. I know. I glazed over well, a little to, bit. But well, it sounded good. I, appreci I, appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate Serenity's question. Yes. And it, it was yeah, a, she it caught was, on to that very quickly. Yeah. Yeah. I it, missed it. Yeah, it was a good, good question. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, Mr. Krabs. Oh. Can you, um, I, I'm actually, I had a question for you both, but I'd rather just go into what we're going to talk about. I want to talk about fantasy football. Oh my God. I don't. Why? I don't. Why? Seriously. Uh, so, I have so uh, many more levels of fantasy football. It's like what I'm talking about with Mike. <laughs> I want to hear about Mike Wallace. Oh my God. Mike Evans. Mike just Wallace. <sighs> the reporter? I literally spend 10 minutes a week engaged in fantasy football like that's probably it okay i spend more time talking about it on the show than he, actually he, looking at websites. he just says that he spends 10 minutes because then that shows that when he wins every week how brilliant oh just, Aww, yeah and how well he knows his player. so he's plan. Really, he's really just patting himself yeah. on the back right now uh no i wanted to, i wanted to ask you this yes uh the president recently took on <sighs> colin kaepernick's protests mm -hmm. colin kaepernick who who's Colin Kaepernick? Colin Kaepernick. I'm just kidding. Okay. I'm kidding. All right. Don't patronize me. I, <laughs> okay. Just because I don't I watch just, sports. I just said that his, much. Yeah. All you know is Aaron Rodgers' mustache. That's true. Are uh, we doing hot takes right now? His, is that what we're doing? His protest during the national anthem, uh, and 
as a result, he ended up taking on the entire NFL this past weekend. What are your thoughts on how Kaepernick's stand for equality and social justice has been handled? I think it's interesting that he's not on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Does anybody even read Sports Illustrated? I'm just saying, it's a, if, if, if he's the one that started it, shouldn't he be front and center on Sports Illustrated? What's your take on how it's been handled? What do you what do you make of That's the res- a vague question? What do you make of the response? And what do you well then let me put it to you? What do you make of Kaepernick's protest? Although he's not protesting now because he's not playing, but last year, I would say I, I I think the fact that we have to stand and put our hands on our hearts for a, an object like a flag it I don't I don't uh, it, it's just a little strange to me as a social studies teacher and someone who believes in the right to protest and that you can do what you want. In that way, in a free society, it, it bothers me. When you taught and kids sat during the pledge, did that ever? Well, first of all, did that ever happen? Uh, it did, and um, b- the conversation came up. There's a there's actually a Supreme Court case that says that there that students are allowed to to not stand for the pledge, and it was a conversation that I had, and it was more of like, if you can stand, great. If not, then you don't have to. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and I think for me, just. I don't know. I I was kind of, um, I don't know, touched is the right word, but it it gave me feelings of some sort um, to see, just as I don't know, like uh, the show of unity amongst the teams. Um, and it's a little hard for me to explain why. Like I thought it was pretty cool, even though the story and all of the subsequent conversation was zero percent about race, was zero percent about equality. So the original reasons why Kaepernick knelt in the first place, which were to spark a conversation about those very issues, um, none of those conversations took place, which is really unfortunate because... um, Unity is not the same thing as what... Right, and what what is everyone talking about? Everyone's talking about whether it's right or not right Right. to stand or kneel or link arms or to show unity during, um, during the national anthem. So... You know, although I, I, like I said, I was like, wow, this is this is really moving. Um, you know, at the same time, it, it's I lament, I guess, the lost opportunity to to actually have those difficult conversations that he was trying to advocate for. I think he. I'm I th- a little. I'm a little troubled by the fact that these, the, the the call for the firing of players is trickling down to the high school level. There was some high school somewhere in the Midwest. I can't remember exactly no, where. No, Louisiana. Oh, no, yeah. Louisiana. Robbie's favorite state, yeah. Louisiana. Oh, Louisiana. <laughs> yes, state. where they said they're gonna they will they will kick players off teams and not let them play on teams if they decide to protest in such a way. Which like, the, it's one thing if it's at the national stage, NFL stage. I get it, but you're bringing it down to kids, and and. and taking that right away from them that that bothers me and and it's and it's especially disconcerting because uh kaepernick's protest and i think you said it very eloquently peter uh the things that he was protesting are really vital topics that we should be talking about in this country but to suspend or kick kids off a team or use progressive discipline uh seems to me to totally defeat the purpose of these are the kinds of conversations that that teachers and kids could be having in school Mm -hmm. um, because we're not going to change people's behavior unless we have these conversations about equality and um, racism Mm -hmm. in our schools. And the other interesting thing is it really exposes, and I don't know what the characteristics of each side are, but it really exposes like, because there's only two sides, either you, yes, you have to stand or no, you don't like, Mm -hmm. 
you come down on one of those two sides. Um, so I think it would just be interesting to look at, all right, well, who are the people that say, yeah, you have to stand? And what does that say about them and their values and their beliefs? And what about the people that say, no, you don't? And what is what does that say as well? Right. Um, so that, I think that would just be is if and how this continues to play out, uh, you know, be interesting just to see what, what comes of it in that in that aspect. Right. It's a very, very compelling issue, and I'm sure we'll come back to it. And it really is a nice tie-in to our upcoming equity series that we're going to be kicking off uh, on episode six with our long-awaited special guest, yes. the, the one and only Mr. Curtis Linton. We teased it quite a bit. Yeah, and and it's <laughs> we weren't sure it was actually going to happen. Well, it's 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 going to happen. Curtis Linton, the social justice warrior, writer, thinker educator practitioner he's going to be with us in two weeks on episode six so we are totally stoked about that it's going to be great great conversation all right uh, anything else guys you want to touch on in our opening any interesting things you've been up to no i have nothing else going on in no life, no so. I, I drove 70 miles today <laughs> well that's it was 70 miles well spent well spent oh uh, yeah you were helping teachers yep yeah, I was. That's that's what you're trying should, to. That's what you should mm -hmm. be doing. So today on Education Excellence, a new segment of Ed's, first time. First time Ed's not dead, produced by Michael Levin Epstein and Sue Semplis. We are fortunate to have D Dr. T.J. Vary and Dr. Joe Jones on the show today. Dr. T.J. Vary is the Assistant Superintendent of Secondary Schools and District Operations in the fastest-growing school district in Delaware. He's a former middle school principal, yay, and assistant Woo! principal. Uh, his buddy, Dr. Joe Jones, is the director of assessment and accountability, overseeing teacher and student achievement in the Newcastle County Vocational Technical School District in Delaware. In Joe's current role, he spearheaded an aggressive and successful campaign to align district assessment, both internal and external, to daily instruction, activities, curriculum, and the Common Core State Standards. Finally, both TJ and Joe co-founded the Schoolhouse 302, uh, which is a leadership development institute that they're going to talk about later in the show. But first, welcome, Dr. Vary. Welcome, Dr. Jones. We're happy to have you on Ed's Not Dead and Educational Excellence. Great to be here. Thank you for having us. So today we're going to be discussing a new and pretty ingenious framework that you all created uh, that really relates to hiring and retaining teachers. Uh, Dr. Vary and Dr. Jones have written about it in a forthcoming article called the two-thirds solutions for motivating and retaining talented teachers. So TJ and Joe, you use the ubiquitous before, during, and after reading strategy framework, which by the way, I used as a teacher. Love it. To, yep. To develop your approach to teacher hiring and retention. Tell us what your inspiration was and how do you think your approach is an improvement on what we all think is a pretty inexact science. So you say that, you know, I mean, I think it's, critical in the, in the question here that, yeah, we know that hiring is an inexact science, but we do know a few things about retaining folks in, um, you know, the Gallup research that tells us that 50% you know, of people, when they leave their role, they say it was due to their supervisor. And so what inspired us was coupling that, you know, statistic with the fact that what a supervisor should spend their time doing is creating a vision core values, what Cynic says around the why in the organization, and that doesn't right. happen mm -hmm. when people are already on board, right? So the two-thirds solution is you got to create the why and the vision, and you got to communicate that before 
and during the interview process um, if you think you're going to retain people once you get them on board. So one of the things you mentioned in the article um, is how it helps to be creative during the hiring process. So I'm just curious, what are some ideas or things that you've seen or done um, that does kind of break out of the traditional mold of just ask and answer questions um, to help determine the best applicants? I mean, we um, advocate for being like innovative in the, in the hiring process because, I mean, if you want to bring innovative people into your organization, you're not going to do it with a generic hiring process. So some things that, that we've seen done that we advocate for is like group interviews, like panel interviews, tiered interviews where there's a, there's a layer where there's a group and then maybe there's some evidence collection. Um, but one critical thing that we advocate for is like some type of performance task where you're bringing a person in to either teach a lesson, at a minimum analyze a lesson that's already been taught, um, work with an IEP, and tell you how they might um, accommodate for, for a student's needs. But if you can make it real, that's important, um, but also contextualize it if, if you have to. Uh, we even did um, at one of our high schools like almost like a speed dating interview with a group of, of panelists and bringing people through. It's just critical to see as many people as you can before you make that decision. So we're talking about going slow during the hiring process. Principals and schools don't necessarily have the time to actually, or not that they don't have the time, but it's hard to, to, to stop in the moment to slow down and, and to think about who you're hiring. And, and you talked about doing model lessons or, or talk about going to see them teach, perhaps. How, how do you get principals and leadership teams to take a step back or how do you th get your mind around that to take a step back and slowing down and, and, and during the hiring process? You know, that's a, an excellent question because we've all been in that position. If, you, if you've led a school or led a department, um, you've been faced with the need to hire someone, and sometimes it's very untimely. And so we're not naive to some of the timelines. We're not naive to, you know, in Delaware – you know, the 30th count, which is our unit count, just ended today. And that's our funding formula for the whole state. So a lot of times people are pushed to hire late because of just funding. Yep. But what we say, and we kind of really wrap our heads around, um, Jim Collins once said, listen, the moment you want to micromanage, you've made a hiring mistake. So when you play the long game, when you recognize the importance of who you're hiring and the position you're hiring for and what they're going to mean to your organization, you have to go slow. And TJ, do you have similar feelings on that? Absolutely. I mean, I think, I mean, I supervise principals. I was a principal and I tell them, slow down, take a deep breath. It's far more difficult once you've made it's difficult, right? So you're in a difficult circumstance. You lost a teacher or you're hiring a teacher to fill a need, and the need is now, and kids are in your building, and you can't stop the kids from coming and needing a teacher. But and so the, the situation is difficult. But what I always say is it's far more difficult if you make the wrong decision to try to get somebody in here quick. So the quick fix is just going to create more work for you, and it's not going to be a good situation for kids. And so it's far better for the kids to go slow and get the right person on board than to try to put a, a quick band-aid on the situation when that in the long run is not going to support learners. 
Yeah, I totally agree with you, TJ. I've having been a principal, I feel like some of that pressure is also self-imposed. When we have a vacancy, there's we have an immediate inclination that we want to fill it, and I think a lot of principals operate that way. Wouldn't you agree? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, and they're not wrong to think that. Right. I mean, but something that Joe and I talk about a lot is just leadership assumption. Like the assumption is get get a person in here quick to fill this void. Right. And it's not the right it's not the right choice for the void itself. Which you which you got to think about is go slow, get the right person, post a job. The pool's not good. Post it again. Be more innovative with with recruitment. You know, reach out to more people. Um, try a different strategy. But hiring is, you know, hands down the most important thing we do as leaders. So to do that fast is silly. Yeah, and you know what's in, you know what's interesting. Just one more follow up uh, in 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 my role um, working with leaders. I'm I'm often surprised by how many leaders will allow teachers to be interviewed and then hired in their schools and they are not a part of the process and your experience have you seen that because i tell folks no one should walk into your school that's been hired that you weren't a part of the process yeah i think that's an excellent an excellent point i mean when we're talking about hiring we can often get you know trapped in the idea of we're hiring for a position like we need a first grade elementary teacher we need a ninth grade math teacher but the role of the principal and the role of the leader is to ensure that that person is bringing far more to the table. So we're not hiring really for just a position. We're hiring for someone who's a strong collaborator. We're hiring for someone who actually knows So take the math example. You know, we're hiring someone who understands ninth graders, the challenges they face and some of the difficulties they go through. And by the way, they should be able to teach math at an excellent level. And that's where the role of that principal being a part of the interview process, ensuring that the team understands what everybody's looking for, and then you make that right selection. So we're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Fellas, do you know who our sponsor is for the first installment of Education Excellence? Who? Okay. Our sponsor for this episode is The Schoolhouse 302, founded by our guests, Joe Jones and TJ Vary. The Schoolhouse 302 is a leadership development institute with a focus on helping people to lead better and grow faster. They develop unique models that deconstruct and simplify complex leadership concepts so that anyone can put key practices into play to build stronger leadership capabilities. Their website, theschoolhouse.com, offers free resources that connect users to inspired topics, resources, and leaders within a variety of fields. Followers receive blog posts on critical leadership topics with meaningful strategies for immediate use. They share a monthly hashtag read this series that features exceptional books for leadership development. And they interview incredible leaders, famous or otherwise nationally recognized in their monthly hashtag one thing series. The Schoolhouse 302 offers professional development to schools, districts and organizations on a variety of topics consulting with you to meet your individual needs or presenting on one of their trusted models, always to help you or your team to lead better and grow faster. The Schoolhouse 302 has a strong track record for delivery of service. They have testimonials from previous clients, and you heard Joe and TJ today on our show. They include the Delaware Department of Education, the largest school district in Delaware, and national conference presentations. Visit their website at theschoolhouse302.com 
and follow both executive officers, our friends, Joe and TJ, at TJ Vary and at Joseph Jones SR. And once again, I'll let them help you get to simple. All right, welcome back and thanks for sticking with us. We are here again with Dr. TJ Vary and Dr. Joe Jones discussing what to do before, during, and after you hire a candidate. And Robbie, I think you had a question you wanted to ask them about the after process. On the last episode of Ed's Not Dead, we had a pretty uh, spirited discussion and we got some feedback online about teacher autonomy. Uh, my partner, Casey, here. Say hi, Casey. Hello. Uh, he is a teacher specialist, and he would argue that most— That makes me sound a lot more important than I actually <laughs> yeah, am. He is very important. He, he, develops, <laughs> he develops new teachers. Um, he, he thinks that new teachers need a certain amount of support in developing standardized routines and practices, if you will, that support student learning. So when they're right out of the gate—and this gets to your— after hiring piece. In your experience, what's the secret to ensuring that new teachers have autonomy, but also get the support, the tools, the structure they need to implement a systematic instructional program? TJ, I can start on this one. I, I mean, the, the first thing that comes to mind when you ask that question is just a very strong mentoring program. So you want to hire that individual, you want their autonomy, because you're actually expecting them to deliver on many levels, not only teach lessons, but to collaborate with the groups, AFPLCs, be a part of your team, and really contribute on many levels. But you also need mentors. That first few years for teachers is very difficult. And I think that's something that if you have a strong mentoring program, they meet maybe once a week as you know one-on-one -on -one mentor and then all of the new teachers meet with the mentor maybe monthly but you have to have something in place to support them i agree with that 100 percent i also think that they need to be high i mean this is back to the vision piece i think they need to be hired into a structure that already has the set expectations and parameters uh, in, in which they're ex they're expected to work so you're not going to you're going to have a mentor who's going to help them write lesson plans but i think they should have some guiding principles and research based strategies that the school is very clear about in terms of what they want to see right great some core values that they want to get from their from their teachers but also from their students so here's our vision here's our core values here's our principles and instruction that everybody should be using to plan here here's the framework that we expect you to be within now innovate within that framework, have autonomy within that framework. I think too often we, we hire people into a classroom, we give them a curriculum, and, and we walk away and expect them to make great lessons and engage kids. They need a framework. And I guess my, my, my follow-up question, because I, you know, maybe it's me being cynical, I'm not sure, but sometimes I sit in interviews and I ask you know, people questions or I watch them do stuff, and you know, as you talk about uh, beliefs and vision and kind of what potential hirees and applicants want, I mean, I guess how do you sort of sort through responses and answers to really get at somebody's core values and beliefs? Because sometimes I'm like, are, really, are you just saying that because you know that's what I want to hear or is that really what you believe? So how do you, how do you get to those really deep, deep-seated beliefs um, 
that align with with your vision and the school's vision. Yeah, I think you you had a you have a kind of a, like an idea about that that we've talked about before. Do you want to hit that one? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's a great question. I mean, when we look at applicants on paper, so many applicants look the same. You know, they have great resumes. They come out of schools and they're you know, they're, they've done significant things. And so it's very hard to actually figure out who might the best person be um, for the job. And then once you interview them, you, you can also then discover they're also all very good. So TJ and I often talk about be very direct. We, we've written a lot on candor, and I think that's where these questions really start to, to hone in on. So when you talk about you know, you want somebody with a strong work ethic or passionate, you know, or a team player. Be very direct on that, those questions. For example, you can ask them, tell us a time that you failed. What is it you failed at? How did you respond to your failure and how did you persevere through it? And I, I wanted to follow up on that point that you're making about, about asking the right questions and driving down to the, to the core beliefs of the person. Uh, are you familiar with Malcolm Gladwell's work on when he was writing for the New Yorker? He did a bunch of essays for them back uh, about 20 years ago. He started with them. Yes. Yes. Uh, so he, he wrote an article called The New Boy Network. And one of the things that he talked about was taking actual teacher interview questions that like like Peter, what you were saying, when you can just say a bunch of buzzwords that that might get, you know, perk the ears up of the interviewer. Um, one of the old versions of the questions that. Malcolm wrote about was describe a few situations in which your work was criticized. How do you handle that criticism? And you're going to get the same kind of the same kind of memorized answer. And it might not get to the heart of what you're asking for. And and the one way Malcolm Gladwell tried to revise it was, and I, I kind of tweaked it for for school purposes. At your weekly team meetings, your boss unexpectedly begins aggressively criti- critiquing your performance on a current project. What do you do? So almost keeping that question open ended. What are your thoughts on, on how you frame those questions and phrase them? Like, can you tell us the process by which you go through to do that? Yeah, so, I mean, Joe and I talk about this a lot, and um, and we love Malcolm Gladwell. And his podcast, Revisionist History, is unbelievable. And, um, Very good, yeah. So I'm glad you, you bring that up. So I think, I mean, one thing is, which I think to articulate a point that Joe was making, is that you're not looking for and this is a subtle difference. You're not looking for what people would do. You're looking for what they have done. So if they stumble around an experience and they can't really answer the question on your rubric, you should just write or on your notes about the interview didn't really answer the question because maybe they don't have that experience um, or they didn't handle well and they don't want to share. But one strategy I think and what you, what you mentioned here is to not ask questions. We did an interview a, a few times where we just had five or six statements. I mean, you ask the question about how do you determine if their core values are a match or what their core values are, throw out your core values and just say, we're looking for teachers who have a positive attitude consistently, a desire to grow, and a strong work ethic. What, what do you say about that? And, and I think clear statements about what the school is about, that's part of our dooring strategy, is to make it clear in the posting and in the questions what you're looking for. And I think that helps to make the determination at the table if the person is a right fit. 
when you when you just asked that when you just asked that I started to get anxious like I was going to have to answer it right then it was like that I wasn't ready that's a hard question okay uh Joe you were going to add something go ahead no I was just going to follow up what's great about what TJ's describing I've been fortunate and TJ was a part of the vocational uh system I'm a part of for a little while as well you know we get a lot of teachers that are career and technical teachers that do not have teaching backgrounds right what they need is actually industry experience right so you begin to learn different techniques like for example true story we were interviewing for a position in construction and the the person's resume he had been all over the place several different jobs and i i thought that was a bad thing because in education we typically get hired you may hop once or twice but anybody that's been to a school a few times that's a red flag so I start bringing that to the interview commander, like, Joe, look, that's what we do in construction. You know, you have to go where the work is. Right. So that they, they led me to understand that you can read into things just far greater um, than what's on paper and then also get thinking out of your box of what the norm would be. And when we would ask questions like, look, you've been in industry for 20 years. Why do you suddenly want to work with kids? You'll, you'll receive authentic answers. And to your point about open-ended why the why the 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 actual shift, and then why do you want to be a part of education? And people will amaze you what they come up with. Awesome. Can I also say something? Yeah, one more thing about go, that, yeah, guys. Jump in, TJ. So, like, I think that there's a critical. Like, you asked the question before about hiring practices and the, um, you know, the the desire to distribute that out to an assistant principal or to a panel right, and right. it's one thing i say to my my people all the time is like i don't want you to micromanage i want you to use a distributive leadership model we want to but i mean joe and i do professional development on on building teacher leaders and how teacher leaders can help manage change but the only thing that i would tell a principal that they should absolutely always be a part of is the interview and the yep. hiring process yep. even if the panel's going to make a recommendation and narrow down to three people you should be. You should get FaceTime with those people. So when, when you do that, and you have that 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 as something that you are always a part of, you start to become intuitive. It starts to become intuitive. You, you gain an intuition on people because the the common denominator is always that the principal is at the table. And once you've conducted tens or hundreds of interviews. You start to get that gut feeling about people, and you can read their core values just through their answers to the questions and the statements that you're throwing at them and the performance tasks that you're doing. And I think that intuition is critical, but it only gets built by experience, and you can't get the experience if you distribute that out to somebody else in their school. Yeah. Um, so just so you know, while we've been doing the interview, we have a we have a pool going on which one of you is going to be – a superintendent first <laughs> Casey and I and Peter have money, have money on the table. <laughs> so this is, this is awesome. Um, this is, that's something we don't talk about. I, I, I know. I, I, I figured that Neither I, one of us responded. To that. I know. I know. I Crickets. Think, yeah. I, you, you left me hanging, but I know, I know that, that, uh, you guys have to think about that in your futures. All right, guys. Uh, it has been an honor to have you on education excellence. You are the signature first guests on Education Excellence. Yes. You're the trailblazers, Joe and TJ. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and we know that our audience has gotten a lot out of hearing your your insights tonight. So thanks again, and hopefully we can get you back on Ed's Not Dead 
again in the future, and we'll make sure that we continue to let the audience know about the Schoolhouse 302. Thanks again, guys. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. Thank you. That was I, – I, re, I really enjoyed talking with them. I thought that was an enjoyable conversation. It was incredibly informative. Yep. I don't think I've ever talked uh, to two people that had thought through more thoroughly hiring a teacher retention than Dr. Vary and Dr. Jones. Absolutely. Yeah. Kind of makes you feel a little bit inadequate. You're like, man, tiny. Yeah. I think about all that stuff. A little bit. Didn't you get some Twitter feedback about uh, hiring teachers? We're going to do a 90-second closeout. Okay. So we can hit it, cap it up. Go. So uh, I tweeted out when hiring teachers, do you place more priority in the open position or the team in which he or she will work? And Kelly from Maryland said, she said, get the right people on the bus that that Collins quote, then determine where they will sit. And you responded, Robbie, you don't want to assign seats first and then find the people to sit in them. So let's, what do you think about that? <laughs> That's a lot of analogies. It's a lot of metaphors <laughs> going on there. The reason I said that was because. My dad once said to me, don't tell me about the person. Tell me about the position. Hmm. I think I think it's important to, to be to consider both. You really have to consider uh, what unique qualities a person brings to a position, but you also have to think through exactly what it is you're hiring for. So I'm not sure either of those are more important than the other. I think they're equally important. That's how I would answer that. And Peter, you have a good rule that we can't mention on the radio, but. Oh, my very cool rule. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, at some point last year, I was just like, is this somebody that I'm like, man, they're really cool. <laughs> As- aspiring principals out there, do not do use Do not use that. Yeah. Use, yes. yeah. How's it working? It was like literally never meant to come yeah. up in conversation with anyone. <laughs> Before you use Mr. Crable's <laughs> framework, use Dr. Vary and Dr. Jones. Yeah, yeah that's probably true. a little bit more scientifically proven. Well, you know. It's a science or it's an art. I don't know. Well, this is, this has been a great first segment of Education Excellence. I agree. Uh, thanks to Michael Levin Epstein, Sue Semplis, and, of course, Dr. Vary and Dr. Jones as our featured guests. Stay with us, and we'll be right back. We are ready for we're ready for a brand new segment. Welcome to Hot Takes. Hot takes. Hot, hot takes. Hot. Okay, hot takes are is going to be our completely uninformed, <laughs> biased. And, it's, it's informed and ridiculous. It, it might not be researched well. Take on important educational issues and so anything that we say on these hot takes you probably shouldn't use. Are we trying to upset people? No. Okay. Just we're just hot taken, man. Hot. We're not allowed to use any research, no. cite anything of any academic who, value who whatsoever. Who reads research? I can't. I, I can't cite the Coleman report <laughs> no. from 1966. McKinsey said nothing. Okay. All right, you ready to get going? Yes. Do okay. it. All right. So we are going to start with a topic that was kicked around on Ed's Not Dead PC on Twitter this week. The tweets is teacher desks, no desks, no student desks. Where are we on desks in classrooms? Get rid of every desk. When you in said every that, school. <laughs> uh, like, what do you mean by that? I don't know. Just I had a moment of inspiration, and I actually wrote a tweet about it. 
Where do teachers put all their papers then? I, you on, know, a te- was, on a student's desk. There was no practical um, implications toward it whatsoever. I just thought, you know, I thought of it because what if we got rid of student desks? What would the classroom look like? You know, and you just had a bunch of like, you know, high top bar tables, cocktail I, I, tables. I, oh, the, the, uh, the high top. I thought you said get rid of them. No tables. No, oh. no desks. So you'd have some oh, you horizontal mean like high, spaces. High top tables? Yeah. yeah there's, oh, I like there, that. But, you, but nobody sits. There's no chairs. I've been in some. Okay. That's a little tricky. Yeah. Are they movable? Well, would, yeah. What would be the point of just replacing desks with tables? You know, we, we would develop. I'm, I'm we, thinking radical. We would develop kids with a lot less back issues later on in life. Or maybe more. Really? Back, maybe more back issues. No. Uh, sitting <laughs> sitting is terrible for your back. I, I will mm. I will chime in and say I'm not as radical as you that I see no purpose for for the aircraft carrier like <laughs> te- like teacher desks so in, cl- in classrooms they they should go i never used mine as a teacher and um, what about like the and the, i even taught in a paper intensive time but i didn't ever use my desk in the dmz With the ditto the like dmz around the okay. teacher desk too which makes oh my god the size of, yes. the, of the area that right. you yeah. know kids cannot go into exactly. I, I actually mentioned that <laughs> the dmz <laughs> I, I mentioned on twitter I, I was envisioning like caution tape on the crowd <laughs> even though that, i've never seen that oh i've seen that <laughs> oh I, i'll tell you who oh yes uh, so i i said too often they are like teacher desks are at the front of room pushing students away yeah, from instruction. Exactly. And Hannah actually, she shot back and said, bad teaching is bad teaching. A, the d- take desk out of a teacher-centered room and you still have a teacher-centered classroom. Mm. Ooh, that's good, a, good and, point, Hannah. And, and I said I wasn't advocating it as a silver bullet. It's just, you know, the it exacerbates concerns that are already evident. Well, I'm all about the one-step solution, so in my mind, that would just solve everything. <laughs> I recall, I distinctly recall helping someone move their teacher desk out like from the front of the room, and within um, maybe two days, it was moved back. Oh, It was okay. a little depressing. <laughs> anyway, next. All right, next one. Ooh, this is a hot one. We're going to get some takes on Twitter on this. Cell phones in school... I am not going to specify the school level. Let's just say K to 12. You can't stop them from being in students' hands, so let it be. But a teacher has to actually control the fact what, what that they're about, not on their phones. What about a seven, Are you going to let me finish sentences? What about a seven-year-old? I know you like cutting me off. What about a seven-year-old? What? A seven-year-old. A second grader. That's not my problem. That's the, if the parent gets them a cell phone, that's the parent's problem. I'm talking. What about in school? Should a seven-year-old? You be said able to pull- you weren't going to mention school levels. Okay, so no, let's talk I about. Said, I said I didn't, boom. I said levels. I didn't say ages. Doesn't matter. It's the same thing. <laughs> Just answer the question. A level of age on this earth is seven years. So old. everyone should have be able to have a cell phone in the hallway in the classroom. You totally wimped out on that. I did not wimp out. I said if you're gonna, ha- you can't stop that thing from happening. You can't stop. You so you can't you have a no cell phone policy. They tried that for twenty years. <laughs> They've been trying for twenty years. It doesn't work. No cell phones. No texting. And you know what? The kids, the the kids these days, they do it anyway. So okay. let it happen. So you have to be able to facilitate. First it. They, of all, you have to build capacity not, to okay, do it. Twenty years ago was nineteen ninety seven. Cell phones were not a problem. They weren't a problem, but you know that they had their schools in this country that had signs up very early on that said no cell phones. Okay. No pagers either. All right, Mr. Krabs, he's dominant. Yeah, it's ridiculous. What, what, I don't even know what to say. No, don't let anybody have any cell phones ever. Get get specialized devices that you put in the classrooms that shut down all the cell phones. 
with their electromagnetic pulse. There, there is a, actually a bag that, on, that schools the, are experimenting with, or the, the kids lock their they lock their cell phones in the bag, yeah. and they and they can't access them at all. They do that the day. for some concerts actually now, where that's what it is. Yeah, the same thing. Same yeah, with thing. entertainers like man, people are like just on the phone and yeah. not being in the moment. He's defensive because yeah. he, have you ever seen him go without his phone for five minutes? He's he he's not so bad. he's not as bad as some. Thank you. Yeah, I'll defend him. Someone's going to defend me. Yeah, you jerk. Yeah, let's, let's team up. <laughs> next, on. next one, we're going to team up. On All right, Robbie. the four day school week. So, Robbie, just to clarify, that means that you would have school for four days rather than five. I know you were questioning that okay, earlier. That's, that's very clear. It's Thank Sunday you. to Wednesday. <laughs> Sunday to Wednesday. <laughs> All right, four-day school week or all-year schooling. I want all-year schooling, I am, and that upsets people when I tell them that. You and I have found something to agree on. Oh, can we hold hands? I, yeah. So West me, Virginia is so I, experimenting with oh, really? it. Yes. I, I will say one of the schools we looked at, my older son going to uh, one of the charter schools in D.C., they, did have, they do have year-round schooling, so we actually looked at the calendars to see what actually does that look like. And I will say the <laughs> – and it's such a ridiculous reason, but the problem is it ch- for younger kids, it's childcare, right? Because they they have two weeks off in October, and they have two weeks off in December, and they have two weeks off in April. So you got all these like really long chunks of time where we were like, oh, what are they going to do with them during that time? Right. You know what? Parents need to adjust. Yeah. I th- I think they would adjust, I'm, and I'm not yeah. a parent, so it's hard for me to to say that. But both parents have to adjust to that. Amusement parks have to adjust to that. House. <laughs> Seriously, the the reason yeah. why school starts after Labor Day in Virginia is because of the King's Dominion Law, which yeah. King's Dominion is a theme park, and that, that's it. a pro- powerful lobby, and they've prevented any kind of changes to the school calendar. I went on the Rebel Yell at King's Dominion when I was 15. That has nothing what to do with we what we're talking about. Year-round schools with four-day weeks. Ooh. Uh, any, any movement, any energy there we like? Robbie, you're looking pensive. What's your opinion? I'm not a big fan of – I don't totally get the four-day week thing. I don't know. I don't really have a – I guess it would be four days for students and then a fifth day of – Professional development. Yeah, whatever. So of some sort of teacher-centered something. Oh, yeah. So we could bludgeon teachers with one-size-fits-all PD <laughs> just a little uh, bit more. Robbie, so we could teach them okay. the routines that they have to do. I, I will tell you, where <laughs> I come down on this is how awesome would it be to have, at least in the Northeast, the Mid-Atlantic, the South – Two weeks off at the nicest time of the year in the fall. That would be nice. That would be pretty sweet. Yeah. Okay, next one. Uh, school unis. Unis. Mr. Sids. What do you want to know? <laughs> Should kids have to wear uniforms? You know, how many, you know how many questions I got from parents about uniforms? They thought it was a local decision that I could make about and, school and uniforms. And they wanted them? They wanted uniforms, yeah. yes. I remember you brought that up at one summer ILT. You were like, hey, man, this is what I'm thinking about doing. Yeah. <laughs> I... Um, I, th- I think school uniforms is the wrong term. I'm for a a dress code that provides for, uh, I don't even know the right word, a dress code that is equitable. Okay, well, you're wrong. Everybody should have a school uniform. Well, like Same exact thing. Same exact thing. Was this 1984? Uh, yeah. I'm saying like like they have a specific, you don't have to have a certain color yeah. shirt, a certain type of pants or whatever, so that kids... Aren't, it's less chance of kids bullying for picking on each other for having certain clothes. So like what blue pants or well red I would say I, actually my last year in high school yeah. they instituted a stricter dress code and you had to wear you had was, to wear corduroy yeah right <laughs> no it was like a khaki pants 
or blue pants. Okay, so that's a that's a I would call that a a uniform. I, I have no, to. Well, a uniform is everybody has the same one. You have to wear the same shirt or the same was there pants. A, was you there can a wear crest. No logos. Okay. No logos. Okay. You could not have any logos, okay. and you had to have a. You could have a four different types of colored um, polos. I have to admit that okay. I've always been a little bit. I, I don't know if you guys have ever gotten that feeling where you see kids from a parochial school and they have their unis on. And it's a little bit like, that's an interesting reality. Yeah. I, I didn't grow up with that. I grew up in the public, public environment of everybody wears their own thing and can do their own thing. And, and you they, wore that jean jacket that I, you still have. Oh yeah, that's <laughs> over there on the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I, it's an interesting it's an interesting concept. I think it, in terms of also the, the equitable outcomes in terms of economics and, and students not being able to afford the best clothes, I think it, it provides a nice baseline for kids. That's kind of like the – are you a Penn State fan being from no. PA? Yeah, but they don't they don't have their names on the back of their football jerseys. Oh, that's true. And they wear very bland uniforms. It, it kind of sends the message that no one is above the team. Yeah, that's true. And to clarify, that. actually what, what Casey's saying is, is kind of how I define school He's uniforms. He's clarifying for you. <laughs> yeah. Where the, you have to – with you know – all khaki pants, but it's not like this one pair of khaki pants. No, no, right, right, right. Yeah, it's a blue shirt and khaki pants or blue right. pants. Could be Dockers, could be whatever. Right. Yeah. But no yeah. logos. Okay. Right, but no, no logos. logos. All right, last one. Actually, I don't see a last one. How about <laughs> yeah, we, we I'll just I'll close my eyes and I'll pick one. Uh merit based pay for teachers. <laughs> oh jeez. <laughs> oh, here's a huge topic. Uh, I don't know. I say no. People, based on research, the people don't. Oh, we're not supposed to cite research. Never mind. Yeah. Um, I don't. I don't know. How much do people work for money? Well, <laughs> I mean, it it does so help. Much. It does help absolutely. It does help. Did I go into education for money? That would be uh, yes and no. I I went into it because a I, stable job. It was a stable, a stable job. job. I needed a career, but probably more persuasively was my interest in working with kids yeah and then yeah i, I know i'm supposed to take an opinion here i'm just like i don't know it's just it's so it's how do you even quantify it yeah i guess no even though i've told everyone yes. the great the great <laughs> it sounds great i mean yeah, it's it, the idea of it i work nice. really hard yeah. i would like to get paid more yeah. and you know what i'm I'm not in it for that particular reason. I remember years ago, actually, you, I don't know if you were in this conversation, but a colleague of Casey's and mine, this dude, Ken. Ken. Hey, we, Ken. We talked about Ken. what if um, individual schools were given X amount of money and it was run like a professional sports organization where oh, they had geez. a salary cap <laughs> and they could allocate the salary amongst people uh, on staff as they saw fit. So if they wanted to pay somebody more, Jeez. they could. Okay, they could good luck less. finding a principal <laughs> Listen, that I, would run that on that On that note, I, mean, I do you, think you, you should... just get like 10 people that love you and 10 Jesus. people that think you're like the absolute worst. <laughs> I don't know. That's dangerous. I, it's, it's an interesting idea. A salary I, cap? And... <laughs> I, I do think that schools, on a serious note, that if they're, if they're schools that are historically challenging, um, there should be more incentives in some capacity. And well, I don't know if that's pay, if that's time. P- teachers want time, maybe less classes to teach. I remember Dr. Jerry Wiest, a superintendent, uh, talking about merit pay and his take, which was really interesting. I had never not thought. a hot take. I had never. No, it was pretty hot. Most of his takes were pretty hot. <laughs> um, he likened it to the soldiers on a Humvee in 
uh, obviously high risk area in uh, in Iraq. And what he basically said was each one of those soldiers had a very specific role and responsibility and they were all compensated the same and their their sense of team was more important than anything else. And that's how Dr. Wiest envisioned teams of teachers working and that paying somebody more than someone else would compromise that team. All right, fellas, it has been an awesome episode. Thanks again to Dr. TJ Very and Dr. Joe Jones for joining us. It was in, awesome having yep, them. Yep, in the first ever installment of Education Excellence. Thanks to Michael Levin Epstein and Sue Semplis as the producers of Education Excellence. Next week, what do we have on tap? Well, in the next two weeks, we, we're going to have Curtis Linton, and we're excited to have him on the show. And uh, you're going to. And he's uh, kicking off our equity series. That's true. Yep. Yep. Okay, because we're going to have multiple segments over several episodes on equity. That's right. Yep. Anything else? Nope. That was a great discussion. Those hot (laughs) takes. I'm so, like, I'm steamy. I'm steamy. All right, Mr. Grable, what are you doing this weekend? Uh, There's something downtown. Any birthday parties? No, no birthday parties. I'm out of that this weekend. There's something downtown. Um, It's like a... Giant Jenga thing, and <laughs> it's not the monument. No, oh, the Washington Monument. No, is it no. a is it a Magic the Gathering Ooh. gathering? And it's also so these artists all design individual holes for putt putt that's kid friendly, and oh. they're they're like ridiculous holes, you know, like yeah. over the top. Uh, so I think we're gonna go down and oh, that'll be cool. Check awesome. that out. Yeah, be yeah, nice. All right, maybe I should have led with that and not the giant Jenga. Yeah, I, I really logic. <laughs> All right. Uh, Once again, folks, thanks for joining us for episode five of Ed's Not Dead. We appreciate it. Please spread the word about our podcast and make sure that you hit us up on Twitter at Ed's Not Dead PC. You can also reach me at R.W. Dodd and at C.H. Siddons and at Peter Crable. For Casey and Peter and Ed's Not Dead, thanks, and we'll see you in two weeks.